Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. After a white teenager kills two unarmed Black Lives Matter protesters in Wisconsin, his violence is not mentioned by speakers including Donald Trump at the Republican National Convention. Instead, the speakers slander the racial justice activists. Gerald Horn joins us. The most seriously profound aspect of this Republican National Convention is the stench of fascism that's emerging from this convention. And Americans in D.C. and around the country rallied this week to support our public postal service, not just to protect mail-in ballots, but to also support beleaguered American workers. This so-called brilliant corporate CEO of a logistics company came into the postal service and within two months created a mail slowdown during a pandemic and several months before an election. All that, John Jeter on media, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Protesters took to the streets and are taking to the streets of D.C. for various causes and actions this week, including that new March on Washington today, August 28, 2020, as we go to broadcast, whether it was the Republican National Convention or the aftermath of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Wisconsin, our endangered public postal service are standing up for worker rights. This week was a whirlwind of direct action. Chris Smalls, the former Amazon manager fired by the company after he organized workers to protest unsafe job conditions, blew into town with his newly formed group, the Congress of Essential Workers. The group and supporters rallied and set up a faux guillotine on the street outside the northwest D.C. mansion of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, who this week passed the $200 billion mark in net worth. Uh, social injustice and, and even the labor movement, uh, we have to stick together. The plan of, of billionaires and union busters is, is to keep people divisive, to keep people from different backgrounds and races divisive. They want the black people to be separate from the brown people, the brown to be separate from indigenous, um, you know, yellow people to, step, uh, to be separated from everybody. It, it, it has to stop and this new... This coronavirus exposed a lot about this country and also exposed the fact that we have the opportunity to make great change in this country. And that's just what we're trying to do um, as the youth and this generation that's coming after the civil rights movement. So we're just trying to hold that torch and be the light at the end of the tunnel because we're in a very dark place right now in this country. And um, I'm just happy to be a vessel for that and a catalyst. Smalls is one of the speakers scheduled for the first convention of the Movement for a People's Party which is happening online Sunday, August 30th at 4 p.m. Go to peoplesparty.org for more information. D.C.'s homegrown drum dance music Go-Go formed the soundtrack for a demonstration and concert outside the home of Postmaster Louis DeJoy on Sunday, August 23rd, after DeJoy began testifying before Congress about changes he's made at the service. The music by Long Live Gogo could also be heard at a street protest on Thursday, blocks from the White House where Donald Trump delivered his acceptance speech. Janice Lewis-George, who won the Democratic primary for the D.C. Council from Ward 4, was one of many speakers rallying in support of the Postal Service and postal workers on Tuesday, denouncing cutbacks and changes to the service by 
Postmaster DeJoy. We've already seen some of these things happening in our community. People calling every day, complaining about how slow the mail has been now. They took some of the mailboxes that were in some of our communities. I talked to a constituent this morning who said, our mailbox has been removed, and many of us relied on this mailbox because we're not close to one of the post offices in our area, and we use that mailbox. And so the impact is just, for the District of Columbia, really is multifaceted, and it's going to impact so many in our community, not just providing union jobs and working families, but also providing the necessities that come from the post office to make sure that our, our families and our seniors are taken care of. DeJoy also testified August 24th before the House, which voted to give the post office $25 billion in aid and to reverse DeJoy's controversial operational changes, which postal workers say have slowed down the mail processing and delivery. Protesters urged the Senate to also pass the legislation, which Trump has said he would veto. More on the post office later in the show. Speaking of candidates, Bernie Sanders may not be on the ballot in D.C. in November, but two other socialists will be. The D.C. chapter of the Party for Socialism and Liberation announced this week that it had secured a place on the D.C. ballot for their slate of candidates, which includes Gloria LaRiva, a journalist and union organizer for president, and Sunil Freeman, a writer, editor, and advocate for the disabled for vice president. In environmental news, legal and citizen challenges are mounting in the aftermath of the Trump administration's announcement that it is opening the pristine Arctic wildlife refuge for oil drilling. Chantel James attended a virtual meeting of one group discussing strategies. On Tuesday, Mountaineers Books and Alaska Wilderness League held the eighth installment in their online conservation series, Geography of Hope. In the event called Raven's Witness, Hank Lentfer, a biologist, spoke from where he lives in the remote southeastern Alaska village of Gustavus, leading a conversation on the critical need to preserve the wildlife of the Arctic Circle by doing what we can to fight the existential threat posed by global warming and fossil fuels. He used readings like the work of Bill McKibben to ground the conversation and to illustrate the catastrophic effects even small changes in temperature can have on the delicate Arctic environment. He treated those who attended to the sounds of some of the wildlife that can be found in the region, such as birds and whales. He described the work needed across different sectors of the conservation movement so that the end goal of preserving our planet will be achieved. Years ago, Joanna Macy described the work of conservation and healing. Um, she said, if you take, imagine it uh, as, as a pie chart, and, and there's all these people working to um, make our future more sustainable. And you take all the work that everybody's doing and, and divide it into thirds. And, and, and one third of the work is... Um, what she called holding actions. It's uh, it's what Alaska Wilderness League does so well. It's uh, keeping the rigs out of the refuge. It's keeping the trees on the uh, hillsides. Um, it's just it's it's Standing Rock. It's um, it's all the protests of of Keystone. Uh, and then another third of that pie. Um, are the people working towards alternatives? Uh, you know, we we have to. It, it's the it's the windmills. It's the, it's the people improving batteries all the time. Uh, and the other third 
are people working toward shifting our collective perspective and awareness and relationship to place. And none of these pieces will succeed without the success of the other two parts. All the actions are absolutely essential, related, and needed to each other. And it will do no good if we keep the rigs out of the refuge and the trees on the hillsides and the Tongass if we don't reduce our, our, our consumptive demands and if we don't change our relationship to place. Um, so I'm, like so many people, I've... Um, at different times in my life, I've worked on different um, pieces of this effort. The next installment in the Geography of Hope series will be held on September 23rd. From Northeast CC, this is Chantal James. In Culture and Media, the Museum of the Palestinian People is hosting an open house Saturday at 12 p.m. at their location in Northwest DC. And that's at 1900 18th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. More information is under events on Facebook. Journalist and friend of the show, Sam Husseini, is having his first art exhibit, a virtual one showing his complex works, which include assemblage, paint, and found objects. The show is opening Wednesday, September 2nd at 3 p.m. at the Jerusalem Center, when he will be in conversation about his work. More information is at JerusalemFun.org, and you can see the works there as well as see the virtual conversation. Today's new March on Washington, also called the Get Your Knee Off Our Next Rally, is happening on the 57th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. Activities will be at the Lincoln Memorial, and then a march will be held, will be held going to the Martin Luther King Memorial. And activities will go on until 3 p.m., and actually, after that, several organizations, Black Lives Matter organizations, are gathering at the Lincoln Memorial at 4 and will be having additional activities that will extend to Black Lives Matter Plaza. More on media later in the show. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm Esther Ivarum. well as republicans have engaged in make believe about the trump administration at their convention this week 
The U.S. empire continues to execute real provocations against China by stationing warships off its coast, entering China's airspace with a spy plane, and proceeding with a blackmail scheme to force the Chinese creator of the TikTok video app to sell to an American company, Microsoft. Well, here to unpack this and other international news is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, which we discussed in depth last week, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. And first, let us know how you are doing there in Houston, because, you know, I know it was spared a direct hit by Hurricane Laura, but it was still impacted somewhat, I guess. Well, so far, so good. Uh, we dodged a bullet, but okay. uh, that's good news because I've lived through Hurricane Harvey, which was a real horror show. Well, give us an update on China, and that is related to China joining in to hand the U.S. a defeat at the U.N. Well, let me start at the U.N. Uh, listeners may recall that in June, Burkina Faso, on behalf of the African Union and the other African nations, filed a resolution at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva uh, calling for a commission of inquiry into what they call systemic racism in the United States of America. It was foiled by the United States after severe arm twisting. Uh, this profound maneuver was a throwback to 1950 when Paul Robeson and his comrade William Patterson filed a petition at the United Nations charging the United States with genocide against black people, which was very significant and forcing the United States to edge away from the more atrocious aspects of Jim Crow. Now, the struggle continues, however. If you look at the China Daily of J July 9th, 2020, there is an article about a virtual conference at the United Nations, once again focusing on systemic racism at, in the United States. It was sponsored not only by groups in China, but also groups in South America as well. There were over 4,000 participants in this virtual conference, the Venezuelan representative was particularly articulate, uh, charging that the United States was violating the Durban Plan of Action, which you may recall emerged in 2001 when the United Nations had this conference in South Africa uh, on racism. The Chinese representative uh, argued that Asian Americans should join hands with African Americans in fighting systemic racism. I was happy to hear that in particular because listeners may recall I've spoken about how China Daily in the past has egged on Asian American litigants to fight against affirmative action, which some have been doing, particularly in Ivy League schools like Harvard and Yale. Now, this is coming at a particularly sensitive moment not only because of what you've mentioned in terms of rising tensions between China and the United States, but also because uh, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has argued in recent days that the United States and China may be facing war before Election Day. And as we speak in Hawaii, the unsinkable aircraft carrier of U.S. imperialism in the Pacific, there are war games taking place targeting China featuring the United States military and some of its closest allies, including France, Japan, Australia, Canada, South Korea, etc. 
Uh, many in Hawaii, fortunately, are complaining not only because they would be a target if war were to erupt, but also in the midst of the pandemic. Does it really make sense to bring these young men and women from the four corners of the globe to this sparsely populated archipelago in the midst of the Pacific? Uh, many Hawaiians say no. And it's not only that, but uh, Mr. Trump, in terms of his trade war, is continually ratcheting up tensions against Huawei, which is the Chinese corporation that's a combination of both AT&T and Apple. The latest maneuver is to try to deprive Huawei of uh, semiconductor chips, which are the lifeblood in terms of smartphones, uh, computers, etc. Now, what I find ironic about this turn of events is that China is now calling for, quote, peaceful coexistence, unquote, with the United States of America. Now, I'm old enough to remember that when the Soviet Union called for peaceful coexistence in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, China denounced this as a sellout, even though uh, Moscow was then uh, arming African liberation movements and China was then collaborating with Washington and apartheid South Africa and Angola. But still, uh, I think that we must echo this call for peaceful coexistence and prove Kevin Rudd, the Australian Prime Minister, wrong, uh, because uh, any sort of conflict between China and the United States would be devastating, uh, not least for the United States itself, but I think it would also be wise for we in the United States, particularly black Americans, to talk to our Chinese friends and remind them of the long-time, long-term Chinese tradition of self-criticism, because I think that that would be useful in terms of helping to edge China away from some of its past positions that are not useful, such as uh, arguing against affirmative action for black and brown youth to be admitted to colleges and universities in the United States of America. Well, I know many of these Chinese Americans have been impacted by the pandemic in terms of the uh, vitriol and the outright racist attacks on them. And speaking of which, um, I, I just don't think I've heard or I've heard acknowledged enough, even from progressive news organizations, about how much the Republicans, the Trump administration, conservative media, just a variety of actually bipartisan folks are working overtime to convince Americans that China is really to blame for the U.S. being overwhelmed by COVID-19 and for the implosion of the U.S. economy. I even received a video from someone who I think considers herself a progressive communicator. It was a video basically making the argument without any audio, just pictures saying how all of our cities, we were having this tremendous impact from COVID-19, yet other cities right inside China were hardly impacted. And it's almost as if that American exceptionalism, again, can't accept the fact that China had a better system for dealing with the pandemic, for shutting down Wuhan, that region, and really sparing most of the country from having to shut down the way we had to shut down here. So I just don't think that many people realize if they listen to some of the right-wing radio, TV shows, uh, social media, how this is being pummeled into people that China is to blame. 
Well, I think it's even worse than what you've articulated, because right now, in the run-up to the election in November, we're facing what I call a trifecta of racism of white supremacy. You see this at the Republican National Convention, where Black Lives Matter is being demonized. You see this with regard to the ongoing uh, Trumpista campaign of demonizing the Latinx forces along the border, particularly those who are seeking to cross the border. And the third part of the trifecta is the demonizing of China, the attachment of the label Beijing Biden to the Democratic nominee for president, which was a fixture of that horror show that has been unfolding this week, speaking of the Republican National Convention, well, uh, also at the convention, one of your favorite people, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, made a very controversial appearance from Jerusalem. And, of course, there's this, I don't know if it's a sideshow controversy about him using, really, taxpayer funds and facilities to make a political uh, statement at a convention, which uh, former uh, secretaries of state have not done. And this has been part of his tour stumping for Israel, trying to get more Muslim or Arab countries to sign agreements of you know, recognition of Israel. Well, it's even worse than that. Uh, Mr. Pompeo is clearly running for president in 2024. And of course, he'll have to elbow aside Michael Pence and Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton and other aspirants. But perhaps even sounds like another worse. clown car. <laughs> perhaps even worse than the spectacle in Jerusalem was his next stop, the Sudan, where he was twisting the arm of the new leadership, trying to entice them and browbeat them into recognizing Israel, and beyond that, to digging into their coffers to come up with three hundred million dollars to pay U.S. litigants who have claimed that the previous Sudanese regime was implicated in the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania some years ago. Hmm. Adroitly, the new Sudanese leadership was able to avoid that particular demand by saying, by saying they don't have a mandate, uh, which is true. They don't have a mandate to uh, agree to this uh, demand that they recognize Israel. But I think with regard to we in the United States, perhaps the most seriously profound aspect of this Republican National Convention is the stench of fascism that's emerging from this convention. Uh, you see this with regard to the guest of honor, the McCloskey couple from St. Louis, who notoriously and infamously waved their weapons on camera at Black Lives Matter protesters marching uh, in front of their palatial mansion in St. Louis. With their fingers it's on the trigger. Clearly. And you see this as well with regard to the 63 million strong Trump base, which is arguing at this convention through their delegates that they're not the perpetrators, that they're in fact the victims, which then gives them license to attack the rest of us. And you see this as well, I'm afraid to say, with regard to the recent embrace of QAnon by the 45th U.S. president. Now, listeners may recall that QAnon is this personality cult that sees Mr. Trump 
as a kind of 1930s-style strongman who is fighting on their behalf, like Mussolini, against elites who they portray as both cannibals and pedophiles. And perhaps the most serious aspect of QAnon is their baiting of Muslims, which is a throwback to the 1500s and religious wars and religious conflicts. They're targeting in particular of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, one of the few Muslims in the halls of Congress. Also, I'm afraid to say, like the 1930s fascists, they dabble in the occult. It gets worse, but I'll spare you the grimy and gory details. But I will say this, that historians of the future may not find it coincidental that at the same time that Mr. Trump is embracing QAnon in the midst of a Republican convention that bears the stench of fascism, that you have this shooting seven times in the back of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And the good news is, I'd like to end on the upbeat note, is that that has given rise to one of the most stirring protests in recent memory. I'm speaking of the Wildcat strike by Milwaukee Bucks basketball players, followed by the entire professional basketball league, which was then echoed by professional baseball players, by the women's professional basketball players, by Major League Soccer, by the tennis star of Haitian and Japanese descent, Naomi Osaka, who in her Twitter feed charged the United States with, quote, genocide, unquote, against black Americans. Uh, Hopefully, their stirring example will be imitated and emulated by millions of others from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Well, we'll certainly keep watching and trying to stay, as you say, you know, hopeful and not just hopeful, but, you know, uh, being, you know, active agents of articulation. (laughs) That's one of my favorite uh, expressions from Edward Said on this show about these things. And in that way, add to the fight back and the struggle for something better here in the U.S. and around the world. And I'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
by the Kersey Morris Post Office, 900 Brentwood Road, Northeast. We are protesting the gutting of the dismantling of a essential part of our democracy, an essential institution over 200 years old, the United States Postal Service. We're here with the American Postal Workers Union. I'm Al Ginsberg with our revolution. We have turned out for the mail, for the Postal Service. This is critical. We must be here for the Postal Service. And we know the current occupant of the White House is doing everything possible to take down the Post Office. He's doing it for two reasons. He wants to get reelected. And one way to do that is to suppress the vote, keep people from mailing in ballots, slowing everything down. So that's why this is happening right now. Defend our democracy! Defend our democracy! Defend our democracy! It ain't right what's going on here. That's right. The other reason, this is neoliberalism, the current occupants, allies, friends, the people who own the private delivery services want nothing better than to eliminate the competition. I want to start out by thanking all of the postal workers who've been going to work every day during this pandemic to protect our nation's public health and our economy. I'm Sarah Anderson with the Institute for Policy Studies. For several years now, I've been doing research on the Postal Service, including what a disaster it would be if this public agency was sold off to for-profit corporations. But you know what the other side always says? They say the private sector can do everything better. Just get the corporate CEOs in there and they'll be able to make everything more efficient. Well, the current U.S. Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, is not only a former corporate CEO, he's a man who made a fortune as a CEO of a logistics company. So you'd think, right, he could come in and make things run even more smoothly. Well, in a minute, I'm going to show you a chart that Louis DeJoy didn't want you to see. For a month, Congress has been asking him for the data on how the changes he's introduced have impacted people around this country and and impacted the timely delivery of postal services, including the decree that he issued to require trucks to adhere to a rigid schedule, even if it meant leaving mail and packages behind. He would not release this data, but someone leaked it over the weekend, and you can see it now on the website of the House uh, Oversight Committee. So what does this data show? Well, what it shows is that starting in March, our postal workers were doing a phenomenal job during this pandemic with on-time deliveries, despite a 50% increase in package volume and a staffing shortage related to the pandemic. But then what happened around July when Postmaster General's operational changes went into effect? It plunged, performance standards plunged. Postal workers were not allowed to do their jobs. That ain't right. It ain't right. right. So the next time someone tries to tell you that corporate CEOs can always do it better, show them this chart. This so-called brilliant corporate CEO of a logistics company came into the postal service and within two months created a mail slowdown during a pandemic and several months before an election. 
We need legislation to rein in the Postmaster General. We need legislation to provide the $25 billion in aid needed to make up for the COVID-related losses at the Postal Service. We need support for a postal workforce that is 40% workers of color, that has been a reliable path to the middle class, particularly for African Americans for generations. We need the Senate to come through now and pass the kind of legislation the House passed on Saturday so that our postal workers can continue providing essential services through the election, through the pandemic, and for generations to come. Thank you. All right, let's give it up for Sarah Anderson. And this is just such an important aspect of our freedom. And it is tragically for sale if the current occupant gets its way, his way. U.S. mail, not, not for sale. sale. U.S. mail, not, not for sale. sale. U.S. mail, not, not for sale. All right, let's bring on, I think we have Denise Lewis George here. She's going to come up. Denise is running for D.C. Council Ward for our revolution. D.C. endorsed candidate. She won in the primary. I'm going to ask her to say a little bit. Yeah. I'm here to defend the post office because I'm a daughter of a postal worker. My mom, my mom raised me, my brother, and my sister. She started in 1984. She worked this post office right here at Brentwood. Nights. Every night. She would come, my older sister would watch me and my brother. She would come home from working at this post office at night and she would come home to provide for me and my siblings. My mother has worked for the post office for 33 years. She has been a member of the American Postal Worker Union for 33 years. And right now as I'm talking, she's serving right now as a postal worker right at the Brightwood station because that's the type of person she is. They said heroes work here. My mother's a postal worker and she's my number one hero. And I'm gonna be here fighting for her. Because my mother was a postal worker, we had food on the table. We had clothes on our backs. My brother had asthma and healthcare issues and we had adequate healthcare. So this fight for me is very personal. This fight is for working families, for black people, for brown families who have been working and who are the backbone of this country. And we will not, we will not let this president we will not let him destroy. This is the United States Postal Service, not the United States Postal Business. And we are here to demand that we be recognized that this is a fight, not just, this is not just a, a civil rights fight. This is an equity fight. It means so much more. And so I stand before you today as the Democratic nominee for Ward 4 Council. But more importantly, I stand before you today as the, as the daughter of a postal worker. And I know and I know how much the postal worker has been the backbone of the middle class, especially for black and brown families and working families in our community. And because of that fight, this fight will not end. This fight will come to you every single day until you recognize that you need to fund and we're asking for the Senate to give the $25 billion that we need for the post office and we want it right now. Heroes work here. Heroes work here. Right now. Next, Ward 4 DC Council Member Janice Lewis George. Thank you so much, Janice, for joining us. U.S. Mail, not for sale. U.S. Mail, not for sale. U.S. Mail, not for sale.
right, we've got a few more speakers, so let's get, bring Mike Golosh from the uh, ATU. Thank you so much and supporting your brothers and sister union members. Right, Mike? Tell us about why you're here. Okay, I'm here in support of this fight to protect the wage and benefit package of postal workers. 50 years ago, 1970, another right-wing president named Richard Nixon attacked the postal workers, tried to undermine their jobs and privatized parts of the postal service. What the postal workers did that time, they shut the whole system down. They called up the National Guard to try and deliver the mail. It didn't work. So finally they had to make a deal. And for 50 years, we've had good paying jobs, good benefits at the Postal Service, and we're not letting them go. So we're taking a stand, not only for postal workers, for all workers in this country that are being attacked by the government, by the right-wing Republicans, by some of the Democrats who are trying to undermine the labor movement and retreat from the benefits and wages that we won over the last 50 or 60 years. So no retreats, stand up and fight back, protect the postal service, protect postal workers. We're in solidarity. The Amalgamated Transit Union, we represent 8,000 transit workers in this city. We stand in solidarity with the postal workers around this region and around the country. Thank you. U.S. Mail, not for sale. U.S. Mail, not for sale. U.S. Mail, not for sale. All right, let me bring on my my boss, the executive director of our revolution, Joe Givarghese. Joseph, join me, please, right here. I'm gonna stick. Brothers and sisters, my name is Joseph Givarghese. I am the executive director of our revolution. Today, right here in D.C., in Cleveland, in Dallas, in New York, Orlando, thousands of our members are standing in solidarity with the workers of the American Postal Workers Union. Let's give it up for our postmen and postwomen. We are committed to defending our democracy and stopping the corporate conspiracy that is behind the postal crisis. Brothers and sisters, the postal crisis is really rooted in three things. Power, privatization, and plunder. Let's talk about power. Donald Trump will do whatever it takes to hold on to the power of the presidency. He's not a stupid man. He may be crazy, but he ain't a stupid man. He looks at the polls, and he is behind. The best way for Donald Trump to hold on to the Oval Office is for him to suppress the fundamental right of Americans to vote. Is that okay with you? Brothers and sisters, that's what this is about. It is fundamentally about the right of Americans to cast their vote in a free and fair election. It's about power and who we the people want to be in power. The second thing this is about is about privatization. The number one goal of the corporate class is to bust public sector unions and pave the way for the privatization of public services. Postmaster DeJoy, Louis DeJoy, is a notorious union buster. He has been affiliated with two corporations 
that have collectively paid over $30 million in fines for violating the fundamental rights of America's workers. Is that okay with you? A union buster should not be the postmaster general of the United States. Look at union power is a fundamental threat to the ruling class in our society. And that's why they want to destroy the U.S. Postal Service and the Postal Workers Union. Because the Postal Workers Union is a powerful force in giving ordinary Americans, ordinary workers, a powerful voice in the public arena. So this is about power. It's about privatization and it is fundamentally about plunder. The corporate class wants to privatize because they want to plunder the U.S. Treasury. They want to privatize the U.S. Postal Service. Private companies want to privatize the U.S. Postal Service because they want lucrative federal contracts. They want to make profit off of taxpayer money. That's what this comes down to. The companies that Louis DeJoy is associated with do over $60 million in business with the U.S. government. They put DeJoy in the Postmaster General's position so that he can get them more business. Is that okay with you? That's what this is about. It is about plundering the U.S. Treasury and enriching private investors and private corporations. Brothers and sisters, there is one thing that stands between us and Donald Trump's power play and the corporate class's plan to privatize and plunder the United States uh, Postal Service. And that is us, U.S. U.S. Mail! Let him hear you. U.S. Mail! Not for sale! Thank you. U.S. Mail! Not for sale! You have been listening to uh, voices from a rally in support of the U.S. Postal Service and U.S. Postal Workers held Tuesday, August 25th, 2020, in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, here with this month's expanded culture and media segment. And joining me again to help break it all down for August is journalist John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for The Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, I know that we're probably going to drill down into what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin this week, and also the RNC convention to some extent, and what's really happening with coverage of American politics. But I have a few media notes, and since we last spoke, one of the first things that happened after we last spoke it was the funeral for uh, John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, and former President Bill Clinton took the occasion during the funeral to take a swipe at Kwame Ture, known by many as Stokely Carmichael during the 1960s, uh, also a veteran of SNCC, chairman of SNCC, and basically saying that, you know, oh, good thing that SNCC took the lead of John Lewis as opposed to Stokely Carmichael, as if, you know, he has some say over the direction of the Black Freedom Movement and as if John Lewis's funeral was the appropriate place for him to be opining about Kwame Ture. So I had that down as a media note. Also, we've been reporting on uh, the case of Julian Assange and more attempts by the U.S. to extradite him, to delay him having a fair hearing in the U.K. I also saw a report that nearly three months after the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S., at least six journalists are still facing charges stemming from covering the protests. And actually, there were at least 600 cases of journalists either being detained or, you know, uh, physically abused during the protests. And then similarly, the Young Turks did an exclusive report on August 8th talking about how the FBI has been targeting Black Lives Matter protesters and, and activists for surveillance, as opposed to these white supremacists, these other people who are the ones actually committing the violence, which occurred in Kenosha uh, this week, when you have this 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse killing two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Anthony Huber, 26, and Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, who were there protesting after the police shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in his back in front of his children. So I wanted to mention those media notes. So what are your big takeaways about media and culture this month? Well, I would like to address just the Bill Clinton, his eulogy of John Lewis and using that opportunity to take a swipe at Kwame Ture and East Stokely Carmichael. It's, it just speaks to the lack of self-awareness of Bill Clinton and his ilk. You know, the oppressor can't tell the oppressed how to revolt. 
It's never happened, right? And, and it won't happen for obvious reasons. And so it's just so uh, almost laughable that Bill Clinton would, would use that opportunity to take a swipe at Kwame Ture, who, you know, is really, I think, widely regarded as, as one of the finest intellectuals the United States has ever produced and certainly one of the most influential revolutionary thinkers that this country has ever produced. So it's just... Uh, you know, it just speaks to the, the last kicks of a dying meal as the United States struggles to sort of remain at the top of the imperial heat. And, and it's just not possible. History shows it's not possible. And, you know, out of desperation, we see things like, you know, Julian Assange and Bill Clinton and uh, all the things that you just mentioned. Right. So I know you have some particular thoughts around media coverage of what's happened in Kenosha and what's happened in general this week. Yeah, I, I am really struck by the events in Kenosha. I mean, this is really extraordinary, uh, even by American standards. You know, we've seen, if we can believe what's been reported, uh, you have an alliance, a very sort of open alliance, between the police department and armed, uh, I think we can assume, uh, white vigilantes, including one at least who was underage, and who has killed two people and critically injured a third. Uh, and yet you have the media, which sort of describes this in very sort of subdued terms. Well, this is not anything to be subdued about. This is a race war. When you have the police working in concert with white vigilantes very openly, and at least that's what the, the preliminary information seems to suggest, I mean, that's escalating what has been sort of racial tensions into armed racial conflict. And so you have the media, I was watching the, looking at the New York Times headlines the other day, it was yesterday, and they just sort of talk about, they describe it in very sort of, very sort of uh, laconic terms almost, you know, a uh, shooting in Wisconsin, rioters looting, uh, and yet, you know, what we really have is a, is a race war here, right? Or at least the beginnings of one. It, it reminded me of a story told by the late great David Halberstam, who was a uh, foreign correspondent for the New York Times uh, in Vietnam as a very young man. And he told the story of he, and I believe it was Neil Sheehan, who was another young reporter for the New York Times. Uh, at that time, I think maybe he was with the Associated Press. And they were in Vietnam, and they had just gotten there. And they went on a mission with uh, the U.S. troops in Vietnam one night, and they were hunting for Vietnamese rebels. And they were there all night, and nothing happened. And they were there with the legendary Homer Biggert, who was another New York Times reporter. And these two young reporters were sort of waiting around for something to happen, and they, they grew kind of frustrated that nothing happened. At the end of the shift, at the end of the day, or that morning, I guess it was, nothing had happened. There had been no sort of conflict, no sort of skirmishes. And they said, ah, you know, this is a waste of time. And Homer Bigger looks at them and he says, what do you mean it's a waste of time? This war is not working. And, and I, I say all that to say that, you know, a big part of the media's role is to give things a name, right? And uh, I'm not sure that the media writ large in the United States today is capable of doing that, both because it's unwilling and I think even more importantly, it's really unable to. I don't think they have the kind of journalists who can do what David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan did during the Vietnam War. When you really understand what they did, they're the ones who are really responsible 
for getting up the anti-war protest, which is what? Democratic, right? This is, this is giving the public the information they need to participate in a democracy. I worry, I really worry that uh, what we are on the cusp of is something that could, I, I can't predict what will happen, but could resemble Nazi Germany. I mean, you see all of these very worrying indicators when you see a sort of com- complacent and compliant media, when you see the escalating economic troubles that are unprecedented, and yet there's no real accounting of it in the media. And then you've got, of course, not just an oppressed working class and a working class whose fortunes have fallen over the last 30 years, dramatically so over the last 10 years, but you've also got this sort of super exploited class of people, black people, who have historically been the scapegoats for all crises that occur in the United States. And so I just wonder if the media is in the vanguard of this counter-revolution that is bearing down on the United States, and I worry that it might have really dramatic and tragic consequences for the country as we sort of try to cope with this perfect storm of crises, political and economic and even environmental and health crises that are bearing down on the country. Well, I've run out of time for our broadcast time, so I'm going to finish our conversation on Patreon, on our Patreon account. We're very happy to have John Jeter every month to talk about these serious issues around media, image, and narrative, and um, that are really shaping our lives. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, that's On the Ground. W. Esther Averam is on all your podcast platforms and our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Kamasi Washington, Change of the Guard, 